This is not another green podcast. So welcome, Maritza, to our episode next to our episode. Yes, David, thank you. We're going to advance a lot today because an episode next to our episode, we're going to start a new mini-series. So this is not just another, not another green podcast episode, but this is going to be a bit different. Yes, today we have a nice guest as well, but it's not a guest that we normally interview, but it's one of our fellow students. And yes, we wanted to give you, yeah, fellow listeners out there, a chance to have a view on our studies, our field of industrial ecology, so that you maybe understand where we come from. Yeah, exactly. And we also have our uh, tea ready. We have some snacks. Unfortunately, uh, it's another online interview. So our guest uh, is now only looking longingly at the cookies we're holding into the camera. Very sorry for that. But yeah, we want to have this as a, even a bit more a relaxed atmosphere and just chat a little bit, learn more about our fellow students and see what we can um, achieve with industrial ecology or what um, yeah you can maybe also aspire to later on after the studies. So hi, Katrin. How, how Hello. You? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, you have to be online uh, since you had a bad information this afternoon that one of your housemates was tested positive. You just told us for uh, COVID. Yeah, so it's such a shame. I would have loved to sit next to you. But here I am still in Amsterdam. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll save some cookies for you. Or I'll buy new ones, actually. I don't think I can not eat those but uh we will we will uh, repeat this at some point um but yeah you are our first guest in this little mini series we're very excited to have you and we will now put five quick questions or five small questions that we would like you to answer for us this is our new game that we would like to play so Mauritia, our first question yeah so at first and Please just look at this as a very, very open question. What motivates you? What motivates me? Oh, that's a very nice question. I now think back to one of my, my only hospiteer avond, like six years ago when I was uh, um, trying to move into a really nice bone group, like a living community. And then they also asked me, like, what do I find most important? And I remember that I was saying that enthusiasm is most important to me. But that's sort of like, I guess, like what motivates me? And then I say, well, enthusiasm motivates me is a bit uh, a double thing. But I guess just anything which kind of like, yeah, sparks my enthusiasm. And I guess some people might say that I always seem very enthusiastic with which is the case like in some way, but um, yeah, I, I guess it, it can be anything. Like lately I've been sort of like obsessed by Formula One because I thought that uh, I couldn't criticize something which I didn't know anything of and then I dove into it and then I sort of like became obsessed by it. So uh, yeah, it can be anything. 
Although I guess the, the thing you want to hear maybe is just saving the world or, or something like this, but um, I guess it's, it's more, not much necessarily what we want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but did you get the room? I did, yes. Nice. Is that this room right now? No, actually it's not. No, I just moved out. I thought oh, okay. it's time to spread my wings again. All right. And I had another question as well, a follow-up question. Which in, those don't belong to the five five questions. We're not gonna ask uh, everyone what motivates you. And then ah, is that that room? And they're they're not gonna know what we're talking about. Can you tell us your address? <laughs> um. Uh, well, I might I might remember it later. Sorry. Let's. Uh, but maybe maybe to to um, yeah, just ask a follow up question on that. Um, so for you enthusiasm about anything is just a greater thing but what made made you enthusiastic about um, industrial ecology and um, what what is your uh, background before you came here um well to give a bit of a long answer to that um i have a bit of a weird father um, my father unlike many other fathers actually uh, really despised the natural sciences so he said that like math and physics and everything like that is just worthless and only political science and more societal stuff is uh, really like really valuable. Whereas I love it. I love natural sciences, but that's sort of like the expectation of my father really always prevented me from doing anything like really physical or like science based. So then I just sort of like, I found my bachelor studies, which is called Future Planet Studies, and which is very interdisciplinary. So then I could still pretend, oh yeah, I'm doing something very social, whereas in fact, I was always doing lots of physical stuff as well. And then like, yeah, just the whole concept of interdisciplinarity um, became so important to me because I could it did appeal to all of my interest, which was also very like much more physical sciences, but without losing track of the whole social side of it. And uh, of course, that's really uh, uh, typical of industrial e ecology as a field in general. So I think for me, that's the most important part. It, it, it's interesting because um, also, industrial ecology is a um, yeah rather interdisciplinary field. I would say. I mean, it's 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 combining several disciplines which all have the same focus, namely sustainability. But it combines um, economical aspects and it it includes uh, environmental uh, an environmental science perspective, a social science perspective, and also um, an engineering part um, actually. And um, that's also interesting to hear um, that you also have a multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary uh, background as such because i have the feeling that many of our many students in our program either have an interdisciplinary background or they're just fascinated by this interdisciplinary view that um yeah that you that you get in our studies which i think um is really interesting because i also guess that more and more working fields are tending towards this interdisciplinary view on problems. And uh, I find this connection quite interesting. Did you know from the beginning that you were actually into the natural sciences different from your father? Or was there some point where you had you really got into a conflict about that or uh, 
at first you were looking up to your dad and saying like, yeah, you're right. And then, I don't know, at 10, you discovered actually <laughs> physics is pretty cool or something. Was there a moment like that or? Well, no, there was definitely not a conflict. I think in terms of like um, how parents influence you, it's much more subtle than that. Like I, I really looked up to my father and I thought he was like the smartest man ever. And then it's more like you internalize this feeling. Oh yeah, I can't do. So in the Netherlands, you have these profiles which you choose in your high school. So I did this very weird profile because I thought I can't do like a natural science profile but then I did this this societal economics thing but then with the hardest math and with physics and like I sort of like shopped it together um and only later I realized that this actually was because I yeah was so influenced by the opinion of my father but what then what then made you finally decide for industrial ecology where you said um, I mean, of course, uh, the whole story with your father, but was that the only reason behind it or what made you finally decide, okay, now no, I'm moving not, to, no. uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm living in Amsterdam and studying in industrial ecology in Leiden and Delft. What? Yeah, um, so I was living in a group with 14 people, 14 wonderful people, and um, I think, well, almost back then it was like four of them um, that worked and partially founded uh, metabolic um, so i was just yeah very but i was much younger than them and by listening to them and knowing what they did i just knew oh yeah this is actually what i would like to do um, but there's another whole other side of the story as well. And that's that actually I, um, I've been uh, teaching geography at a high school for uh, a year before I started studying. But to, in order to be able to teach also in the higher grades, you have to have uh, completed a master's. Um, and I know that I want to teach. So that's really my ambition to uh, teach at high school. But I also know that it's quite a, like it can be quite a, difficult career in terms of like workload and everything so i wanted to do a master's which allowed me to uh, teach in the higher grades of high school but also if then it turned out that i didn't want to teach or i didn't want to like pursue a career in education that i would be able to uh, have a job which i really liked and then looking at my fellow flatmates uh, who were doing well, working for metabolic, which I guess is sort of like the industrial ecology workplace, well, in its most typical way, I thought, well, let's do industrial ecology because it has all the interdisciplinar interdisciplinarity that's needed for geography in a high school. Um, and then if I don't like it um, to go back to teaching, then I would love to do something with uh, industrial ecology and all the methods. Briefly explain uh, in a sentence or two what metabolic is and what they what they do for the people who might not know that. Yeah, uh, metabolic is a consultancy firm in Amsterdam North, um, and they uh, yeah they specialize in uh, circularity and sustainability and in how to make businesses sustainable. But what's really nice about them is that they also um, do their own projects. So they sort of like use the consultancy part to have their own ventures and um, yeah, really do their own projects themselves, 
like for example um, the Keuvel, um, which is a, a working place in Amsterdam Noord, um, which is also connected to my pension story, which I will might yes, elaborate later on. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's metabolic. Okay, fantastic. Quick new question. What keeps you optimistic? Hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a more pessimistic story than my enthusiasm story, I think. Um, uh, well, that's hard, actually. Um, but it's hard to, to stay optimistic. But I do feel like I, that I'm more optimistic now than I was when I started studying sustainability and climate change in 2014. I started my bachelor, or 13 even. Um, and back then, uh, there was it, the world was a bit more pessimistic than now. And maybe that's also because um, of our studies that we learned so much about actually all the great initiatives that's, that are going on and the pace, the rapid pace now um, in which it's changing. So um, comparing the world of sustainability now and uh, in 2014 actually shows me that there is reason to be optimistic because it is getting better. That's really uplifting. Thank you. It's a very optimistic view. <laughs> well, good try. And then we get to the last of the five. Well, it was probably like five and a few questions, but uh, so the last official, the fifth official question. If you could change one thing or implement one specific rule change, to change the world, what would it be? Um, I think I'm going to repeat Rutger Bregman, a Dutch historian here, and that's Texas, Texas, Texas. He said that at the uh, World Forum for Economics, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I do feel that that's one of the most important social changes to have to tax the rich more in order to uh, well, in order to fund all the investments and changes that are needed to, well, literally save the world, but also just because I feel that um, just inequality in general is very bad for society. And that's actually something that really worries me now, maybe um, even more so than some of the environmental challenges we have. I think that a lot of the social challenges we have now are, well, um, make us as a society way less resilient to be able to cope with the environmental challenges. So um, yeah, I think uh, more taxes is actually one of the things I would like to see most. Sounds at the first like a bit of a boring answer, like no offense, but <laughs> you know, I was imagining something, I don't know. I, actually, I don't more know. More philosophical. What I was, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure what I was exactly expecting, but um, Actually, I was talking to a friend yesterday who was also from Germany, and she is going to write her master's thesis um, about taxing or implementing a carbon tax also on food products. And she wants to look at it from an economic perspective um, in the way of, yeah, how, how is that going to affect low income population? Because that was actually an, a suggestion from the Green Party, or they're at least uh, very supporting that very much. Um, so, how is a carbon tax? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to take another sip of tea, a bit of cookie crumble. Uh, <laughs> thank you, David. I can do my own sound effects. 
So that's how the cookie crumbles. Um, so, um, so, ah, yeah, so the, the Green Party is actually supporting this quite a bit. And she's now looking at how would that affect the low income, low income population if there was a carbon tax implemented also on food products. Um, so my question now is, would you then, the taxes that you imagine, they would be mostly really for the rich or um, to reduce the inequality that you also mentioned? Or are you also thinking about general carbon taxes uh, also on everyday items? I mean, yeah, I think I'm a bit reluctant to think about taxes in terms in really to um, to change behavior, because I do feel that lower income groups um, can really uh, be disadvantaged by that, which you also see with like the yellow jackets because of the more taxes on gas prices. But then in the rural areas of France and people really need their car in contrast to like uh, rich Parisians or something. So um, that's very difficult. So I'm much more thinking about just like the multimillionaires um, and just like, yeah, just taxes on wealth. Um, I feel that that's actually most important and pressing right now. Of course, also be nice to have a cap and trade that everyone just ha can have, like, I don't know, a million, everything above that they have to trade to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people. That would be really nice. And yeah, True. I mean, uh, then we're at the money, at the money topic already. So yes. I think maybe this is a really good transition. Time, uh, there to... was a perfect transition yeah. to talk about the pension fund. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> tell, tell us. Tell us, what did you do? Because, dear listeners, we did not pick Katrin only because she's such a nice and interesting person. I mean, well, because one part which makes her interesting, you're going to learn about now because Katrin and some um, colleagues achieved something really, really great. So pension fund, Katrin, tell pension us. Pension funds, yes. The best topic in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm, I just wonder how you would like me to tell this story because i can do a very long version or i can do a very small version maybe maybe you can start with um explaining what a pension fund is not everyone might know it uh, including me beforehand <laughs> we had to uh, google it um and then also maybe what you what you did subsequently with this pension fund what what how you impacted it let's say yeah no, okay, perfect. Uh, then I know how to tell my story. Yeah, um, a pension fund is actually something that's quite well known in the Netherlands uh, because we have one of the biggest pension sectors in the whole world. Um, and in the Netherlands, um, for lots of companies, like in, in certain sectors, you are actually obliged as an employer to, um, to let your employees join a pension fund. And a pension fund um, is just a fund that gets money from its participants and then uh, collectively invests that money in the market or in obligations or in whatever way. Um, and then, uh, well, hopefully that pool of money increases. And then when their participants reach the age of an, uh, retirement, um, they can have a pension by this pension fund. So it's basically just um, a collective asset manager that manages the assets of uh, people who are working 
And um, in the Netherlands, uh, the pension funds came up like a bit like post-war. Most of them came up in like this 50s and 60s uh, when the union started to uh, make their um, deals with the employer organizations. Um, and so lots of pension funds are actually governed by uh, unions and uh, then by the unions, but also by the employer organizations. So I will give an example. You have the pension fund for the hospitality sector that has been uh, founded by the union for the hospitality sector and the employer organization of the hospital, uh, hospitality sector. And that pension fund just receives every month um, money, uh, like the premium from all people who are working in the hospitality sector, and then they invest it. And then when you reach retirement, they give it to you. So that's what the pension fund is. And of course, people really uh, depend on this pension fund uh, for their uh, safety, like fin financial security uh, when they reach the age of retirement because the just the normal government grant that you get the AOV just isn't enough for most people. But maybe as a, a in between question, sorry to interrupt you. Um, maybe you can quickly also say whether this pension fund, uh, in contrast to the governmental um, money that you get, is it state-owned or is it a private undertaking? Yeah, no, it's. Um, it is a private undertaking, but there are lots of laws also that. Uh, apply to those pension funds because um, the rules are set in the the CAO. That's like the collective labor agreement between the unions and the employer, employee uh, employer organizations. So there, it is very institutional. It is in the Netherlands. It is institutionalized, but it isn't owned by the government. But what is then also because it's institutionalized in all those agreements, uh, as an employer, you are like you are obligated to join a pension fund for your employee. So also as an employee, you don't have a choice. You always join this pension fund. Only not if you're like a freelancer or in some new sectors, then they don't have it. But in the most sectors, you are just obligated to join it. Um, and then to get a bit to my story. Um, so I was living together with um, two guys that founded a cafe, Café de Keuvel in Amsterdam Noord. And they were doing everything they could to be as sustainable as possible. Like they bought the most sustainable coffee beans and they didn't sell meat. And sometimes, and then they said, oh, this is a, a piece of chicken, but then actually it was vegetarian chicken. And well, they did all the cool stuff. But then um, Joey, one of the guys who founded it, um, had to do uh, all the administration and got extremely frustrated because every month he was transferring this huge amount of money to the pension fund. And then he was looking into the pension fund and how the pension fund invested his money, like the money of his employees. He uh, became so frustrated because the pension fund was just investing part of the money in fossil companies like Shell and well, whatnot, just lots of like the whole fossil industry. So he uh, became very frustrated with it, tried to call the pension fund, um, 
thought about uh, doing an action in order to be able to leave the pension fund and create an own pension fund and well, everything in order to not be responsible for this money being invested in fossil stuff. Um, well, then, long story short, um, eventually he and Tone, the other owner, uh, asked me if I could maybe uh, dive into this whole investment policy and join their campaign to make the pension fund divest uh, from fossil fuels. Um, I expected that they ask specifically you? Yes. Well, they asked me because um, I was specializing in economics uh, within, my major, uh, within my Bachelor of Future Planet Studies. So I was basically becoming an environmental economist. Um, so uh, I started researching, but then I, of course, found out that I actually had no idea how pension funds worked. Um, and I wanted to write my thesis about it. So I thought, okay, I can do this whole activist approach, but actually I want to learn how do pension funds worked, work. So I uh, wrote an email to the pension fund and I asked whether I could do an internship with them and ask them all about pension funds and their climate risk of their investments. You and went the into the lion's den. Hmm? You went into the lion's den. I did. Great. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, here also the story becomes a bit. Well, I used to be pretty ashamed of this, but now everything turned out all fine. I can speak about it a bit more proudly because they didn't know that I was uh, affiliated with Café de Keuvel. Um, and uh, I also, at that point, in the point of writing my thesis, thought, okay, I'm just gonna write my thesis about the climate risk of this pension fund. But then some personal stuff happened in my life. Um, and I uh, was just sort of like out of it for a month, two months. And then later I came there, I, I called back like, hey, can I, can I come again? And they were like, well, Katrin, we didn't hear from you for a long time. And then we started looking into you. And then we saw this, this job opening, this internship opening at Café de Keuvel for an intern, um, to help us fight the pension fund of the hospitality sector. Um, is that you, they asked. And I was like, uh. no. And then I explained the story. Yeah, it was me. But then I realized that I actually really want to know like how it works with a pension fund. It was really like such a like a rom com, you know, where it's like I don't know what is it like ten things I hate about you, where the guy has to go out with the girl because he's being paid or something, but in the end she recognized. So oh, I really love you, and it's like yes. <laughs> your story just a little bit different. A little different, yeah. But you went in there as a spy, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, sort of, and this is also really the part that I. Well, I, I just said that I didn't feel comfortable with because I thought it was just, I really appreciated them for welcoming me with such open arms. And I felt like I just betrayed their trust. And yes. before they had found out, um, yeah, that you were, uh, yeah, that you were affiliated with, with the yeah. Curvo, had you planned on telling them or, I mean, in your thesis, you were probably also going to be quite critical 
of them already? Yes, but, but in my thesis, I've like for the academic part of my thesis, I already decided to not write a very activist thesis, but just write a thesis about the climate risk of their investment portfolio. So I could sort of like explain to myself that actually my whole sort of, yeah, my activist side with the cave was, was more my private, my private life and had nothing to do with my thesis. Um, so that's how I sort of like <laughs> explained it to myself. Yeah, but like I said, there was also quite a lot of personal stuff around that time in my own life. So everything was a bit of a blur. And they did actually didn't mind. Once mm -hmm. I explained everything to them, it was fine. And then, uh, then I uh, finished my thesis, but not with them as a case study anymore, but just a general question, what is the relationship between pension funds and climate change? So it was much more a sort of like philosophical angle uh, about how they had the duty of care to people of the future and how that should be their aim next to really um, having a, a, a sole financial angle in their business. But yeah, so I, I finished my thesis and then just, I don't know, a few months, half year, year, and nothing happened until Tone and Joey got uh, very frustrated again. And they asked me again, hey, Kathleen, okay, super nice. You finished your thesis now, but can you now really do the inv uh, investigation of this pension fund and what they invest their money in? And uh, I had nothing to do because I was uh, recovering from a, from a surgery for my back. So um, I was just lying in bed and I thought, yeah, let's do it. And now comes also a thing that, I, that makes me very optimistic because actually quite a lot had changed since I last um, been at their office. Hmm. They were um, much more transparent about their uh, investment portfolio. Um, they had much more just policy notes on uh, sustainability. Yeah, so quite a lot changed and which also allowed me to really investigate. And then finally I... Uh, made this report yeah i can't show it to you but it's this report of their whole investment portfolio and i discovered that they invest 300 million in the fossil industry and that's sort of like eight percent of their investment portfolio and that was something that they actually didn't know themselves so that was quite cool uh, because they just weren't interested and it also makes sense that they weren't interested because a pension fund works, they don't want to make a lot of risk uh, because it's the people, it's the money of other people that they're dealing with. So if you want to invest without having a lot of risk, you shouldn't make active choices in what you invest in um, because that would be a strategic choice and you never know whether that's going to work out. So basically you want to replicate the whole market. And currently the whole market is around 11% is fossil. So then it makes sense that you invest that much money in fossil because you just want to replicate the whole market. And then our sort of like view was okay, but this shouldn't apply to climate change because that's really conflicting so much with the interests of your uh, 
like your target group, which is people of the future that you invest for. Um, and also I uh, made this analysis that if they uh, divested from the fossil fuel sector like 10 years ago, their um, results, their like investment results would have been uh, much better. So that was a financial argument also to put in. So then with this report, we, uh, we called them again, we wrote an email and then they invited us around the table and it was like, oh yeah, we know you. <laughs> Yeah, then, then very slowly the ball started running and uh, Tone um, actually got a chair at the board, the Verantwoordingsorgaan, so that's like a board of uh, employees and participants of the, well, just, I don't know the English word now, but it's, yeah, they have to... Board of responsible... Yeah, or, mm. they have to ask them for advice and they are sort of like... Advisory they, board? Yeah, I think, yeah, mm. well... He was there doing meetings and then after every meeting, his last sentence was, but what about your divestment promises? <laughs> and then uh, eventually he got a call and it was like, well, uh, we've done it. We're the first. We've Maybe. completely divested. And uh, was uh, De Peuvel, was that still running during that time or was he just... Uh... Yes, but uh, Tone and Joey did sell it in between. Oh. So uh, oh. it still exists, but they're not the owners anymore. Okay, well. Well, different great achievements uh, at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So that is really fantastic. And the, the report you were you were just showing us into the camera is that available online? Can we put that in the show notes or no? Unfortunately, okay. not. No, I can't. No. Yeah, actually, we or it is. I actually don't know. Oh yeah. So another thing, actually, for me, this is all quite a long time ago. Um, because so uh, such long time, well, so they divested last September, but then our like when I finished the report, that was like the end of 2019. Okay. So it just took a long time for them to really do it, which makes sense because it is a very big job. But so for me, everything is it's 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 very nice that there is now so much attention to it for it. But for me, it's actually quite a long time ago that I... Yeah, <laughs> interesting. And now, since they divested, uh, did, like this process of divestment, I, I mean, I don't know anything how this works. And you said it's a lengthy process, but um, they just moved their investments to different things or they just completely like, they probably went completely out of investing uh, into um, fossil energy, but they just shifted their investment behavior kind of, or... How can yeah, we um, what they've done is that they actually I don't know exactly how they've done it because yeah like I said it's a long time ago that I'm really busy with this but um, what I imagine that they've done is they uh, divested all so they put all the money out of the fossil and then they just put it in the rest of the market um, they also say that they're making conscious choices in like redirecting the money from fossil to green energy but don't be too optimistic about that because there's simply too less green stuff to invest in now. And if you then redirect all that money you had in the fossil fuel industry in the green stuff, you have like uh, a majority share in all those companies and you don't want that because then you just simply have too much influence as a big institutional investor and you don't want that. You don't want big influence. So yeah, that's a bit what I can say about it. Many, many more questions about this, but I uh, think otherwise it's becoming too yeah, specialized and we should maybe 
just do a different, a, a complete episode yes. on environmental economics. I think that would be absolutely lovely. Maybe one last question for them. Actually, I, I came up with many questions in between and then I don't know, I already have forgotten how, but maybe um, another personal question, you don't have to answer this, but um, are you investing yourself, like your own money? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not anymore. I did manage like also the money of my mother, um, but pre like uh, February 2020, I thought, oh, let's get out of it because the world is getting weird. And then I did invest in some like uh, green index funds like uh, ATFs. And then unfortunately, uh, after a few weeks when the, when the market drops, I didn't reinvest again because otherwise I would be very rich now. But yeah, no, it's just stressing me out. It's really yeah. stressing me out. And I understand that many people like it, but I've also like in the house where I live, there was this big cryptocurrency craze going on and everybody was just staring at their screens. And it's just, it's so much stress. So if I would do it, I would just, I guess, hire someone to do it for me. And then I will just not look at it because it's different when it's your own money. It's just very different. Yeah. And you also don't have the funds to really replicate. I don't know. No, it's just, I, I don't like it. No. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's, yeah, really, really interesting. And um... yeah, so... I mean, the pension funds is really, really amazing. And it might sound a bit dry at first, but you really showed how important that actually is, how much money is going in there, how much a big organization like a pension fund can actually move and impact that. But we know that your sustainable career uh, started even earlier than that, right? I think it was chronologically before then. And that is also a very interesting topic. And another, um, how do you say, like a, a thought um, spark that I got from you is to think about the sustainability of my sex life. Because before... Yes, we have to sell our podcast. Exactly. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. <laughs> and especially sex. Yeah, Mauricia, tell me all about your sex life. I found find your intro of this podcast, by the way, very sexy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's already where the sustainability of my sex life starts. This, uh... yes, <laughs> oh, that is a very nice compliment. <laughs> I'm blushing a little bit. You're listening. <laughs> it is happening. No, because you were working at the Condomaria in uh, Amsterdam. I don't know yeah. if that's right, because a lot of your life seems to happen in Amsterdam Nord with the curve everything. But uh, yes, and now we, we hear Condomaria. One might imagine what a Condomaria is, but uh, then we might also ask ourselves, what is sustainable about it? Well, next story. <laughs> <laughs> next story. Yeah, um, so first about the Condomerie. Uh, yeah, so I grew up oh, in the red light district in Amsterdam. Um, and uh, it was owned by the parents of uh, a primary school friend of mine. So I visited a lot. But I always thought that it was a candy shop because it looked so <laughs> incredibly colorful. And actually all my friends thought that it was a candy shop. So uh, I've known the owners for a long time. And then when I was doing my gap year, I started working there and I did uh, the course, the condomologie course. So I, um, they taught me in nine days everything there is to know about condoms. Is that an um, actual 
What 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 are the most important things to know? Um, the most important things to know are, of course, is the size. That's the most important thing. So in the Kondomeri, uh, they have their own size system, and they have I don't know what it is now. It is like 110 different sizes. So in terms of length and uh, girth. Um, so that's definitely the most important thing because it really influences uh, safety, but also pleasure. So if you don't like your condom, then it might also have to do something with, uh, with the size. But then there are also other stuff like the materials. So for example, latex or other materials that uh, and you can be allergic to latex. Yeah, there is a lot. <laughs> There's just a lot. What other um, materials are there? Um, yeah, you have the raisins. You have the old raisins? one. Raisins? Yeah, like harsh resin. Oh, okay, okay. I, I thought you meant like the dried grapes, but you no, mean like, no. like resin? I don't know. Resin, yeah. Resin, yeah. Which then is actually the resin also can make it much more thin and can conduct the temperature much better, which also increases pleasure. Uh, but it looks a bit weird. No, it doesn't. I can't say that. It doesn't. <laughs> And then you also have the female condoms also to uh, like empower women because you can uh, put in the condom yourself, insert it also way before. Yeah, lots of stuff. But the most important thing is that the owner, Theodore, is I guess one of the most inspirational, inspiring men I know. And when the AIDS crisis hit in the 80s, he started the condomery with his wife, Marijke. But he never stopped with this like entrepreneurial spirit. So he's just very idealistic. And then once he started to hear more about sustainability, he just decided to be a front runner as a, a small business owner in um, sustainability. So since 2011, they are completely uh, carbon neutral. But he also was in the forefront to make the ISO standards of condoms uh, more sustainable. And he uh, took that ISO route because like with um, Gurmerka, what's that? Trademarks? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like quality signs, like, like a fair trade. Label, like, quality labels. Labels. Yeah, 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 labels. Labels can actually be uh, quite expensive for uh, producers to put on their products. And with an ISO standard, it's just all around, like all condoms from that moment on have to comply to that ISO standard. And he was, um, yeah, really started to make those ISO standards more sustainable. He did a life cycle analysis of condoms. Yeah, and for me, it just shows, uh, and I make now also sort of like an, an analogy with the Keuvel, how powerful you can be as just one small business. So I'm not talking about like you as an individual here, but as a business, because I feel like you do have a bit more authority then. So if, uh, for example, also with the pension fund campaign, we were doing it out of the name of the hospitality sector and we were a cafe, we were a restaurant, so they couldn't really ignore us. And also with like a small shop as the condomerie, you can actually really say, I'm selling this product and I want this for this product. Like you have more authority. And I think that that's extremely inspiring. And also like when people ask me what I feel now, okay, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but like the city center of Amsterdam is very touristic and that has been my home for like all of my life. And so a lot of people ask me what I think of that and what to me is the biggest issue. And for me, the biggest issue 
is actually the decline of small privately owned businesses. Um, not necessarily like the big amount of tourists and everything, but just just small businesses that, that are really like the vital organs of a neighborhood and yeah, can be very influential in shaping that in uh, that neighborhood like the condomerie is doing like how they uh, support um, sex workers and how they are a front runner in just creating this product differently and yeah are just a familiar face in the neighborhood and i find that very important to make a city resilient yeah it's yeah very cool very uh yeah, a very interesting field of uh, sustainability where you can see industrial ecology, you can do everything. You can exactly. do everything. If you want to yeah. become a condomerist, <laughs> go for it. Make yeah. condoms more safe. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's and I mean, also, condoms uh, are very crucial because uh, it prevents overpopulation, which is also not good for sustainability. And health crises. And health crises. Uh, but this is just crisis. a minor, minor detail. Yeah. <laughs> One fun fact about condoms, they're not vegan. So you, uh, there's an animal protein involved in the uh, production of latex to make it more subtle. So uh, there are vegan condoms, um, but you have to uh, buy them yourself. Mm -hmm. But I, are they then much more expensive? And if it's not vegan, like it's also not vegetarian if it's an animal protein or? Oh, uh, I think that's a good question. And I actually imagine that it's not vegetarian, but they always say it's vegan. So it was just, I never really thought about it. Hmm. Yeah. But in any way, like if you buy your condoms, buy them at the condom, they're much cheaper. You, you're sure you have the right one. <laughs> and they have a lot. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. If you, um, we will share the link. We will share the link in the show notes for sure. We can do like a like a reportage, like a documentary where we as the Modern Other Green podcast team go to the Condomerie and uh, interview also we will do that. Theodore, right? Theodore von Boven, yeah. Theodore von Boven. We'll interview him like in the store, and that that would be really cool. That would or a nice awesome. giveaway. They have lots of of cool presents. <laughs> yeah, you told me about one once about the Christmas uh, stories, right? Christmas. That they had like a book with erotic stories, but then oh yeah, oh no, that was in my cash uh, packets. Ah, in your cash packet. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, that was also really amazing. Erotic stories with condoms. Yeah, very erotic, very erotic. Nice. And ah, yeah, you were mentioning you. So you got this course in condomology. Is that an actual? field of study or, or no, no. okay so they developed it and then just everyone who works for them has to know it because you have to advise people on very uh, like uh, important matters so you just have to know stuff about it which is also why i really like those specialized stores because there's just so much knowledge about products in those stores yeah. which also uh, really i think increases sustainability because i when I go to, when I have to fix my vacuum cleaner, I go to the special vacuum king and he knows everything, just wants to repair, uh, like talk shit about Philips because they change their model every year. And actually there's so much knowledge in just these people because they know the products and they know what the issue is. And they know also then what the solution should be for the big companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. I mean, you cannot do that with a condom if it's broken, but... Uh... Well, yeah, but you can, like, you can go back to the store and say, hey, this has happened. Uh, um, ah, okay. Okay. And then the <laughs> condomerie actually has quite, 
Yeah. <laughs> We're now waiting for reuse. Uh, re 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 oh, yeah, so actually that's also, so if you do it correctly, you can reuse condoms and especially like the female condoms, but you just, you have to do it correctly. And that's of course, like an essential part, caveats that people don't trust other people with. Um, but yeah, of course, that's a big sustainability issue to just let, make it possible to reuse them. But yeah, in what, how can you trust people to do it properly? Like plastic recycling, you also can't really trust them to do it properly. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, really amazing. That's very interesting. Yeah, two very, very, very interesting uh, stories, Katrin. Thank you so yeah, much. That was different. really, yeah, <laughs> it was something different and um, yeah, very interesting and enlightening. Yeah, really amazing to see like how your way towards or your path towards IE was shaped and uh, yeah, what, what people in the study of industrial ecology, where they come from, where their interests lie, their, their motivation what the people of industrial ecology already have done and moved and moved and impacted. I mean, that's amazing. You you um, and your colleagues, you made it happen that there's like 300 million less in the fossil sector, which is, uh, yeah, amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, and to, uh, I don't want to brag, but to make it even bigger, I mean, to be the first pension fund of the Netherlands with the biggest pension sector of the world, I don't know, this, this, you just feel that this domino is going to fall. And now also ABP, which I don't know that from the top of my head, but it, that's just like a magnitude bigger than the pension fund of the hospitality sector. But they now also are divesting. So that's yeah. just amazing. It's really amazing. Well, basically, like, thank you, Katrin. To round, to, round, <laughs> to round this off, you can really, I hope also all the listeners will feel it through their earphones. Uh, you can really feel the enthusiasm yeah. that you were praising in the beginning yeah and thank you first so much for that and um we can wrap it up we can wrap it up yeah well, thank you so much for having me yeah it was really lovely talking to you yes uh, it was also, very nice you know because we started studying during the corona uh, crisis we still get to know each other as like our, our fellow students and this was a really great way to also get to know you a bit better um so yeah really amazing thank you a lot for your time until next time, stay green, stay cool, and stay tuned. See you. Not Another Green Podcast was created by Katrin, David, Lydia and Mauritia for the Industrial Ecology Study Association Shift, IESA Shift. You can visit our website on IESAShift.nl or find us on Instagram at IESA underscore shift. Any questions, remarks, tips for next topics, or do you want to share your favorite joke about the climate crisis with us? Drop us an email at podcast at isashift.nl. Music by Kevin McLeod.